I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening and welcome to this evening's conversation at the online London Review Bookshop, the latest event in our occasional revivalism series, celebrating and suggesting literary revivals. I'm Sam Kinchin-Smith, the LRB's Head of Special Projects. Not that tonight's subject, Penelope Fitzgerald, is in need of the revivalism treatment, but tonight we're considering her lesser-known work as a reviewer and critic to mark the publication of a new selection of her writings for the LRB. You can buy that and her other books from the bookshop by uh, using the URL lrb.me forward slash Penelope. Tonight, we're delighted to present Susanna Clapp, theatre critic for The Observer, author, and one of the founding editors of the LRB who worked with Penelope on many of her pieces. Hello, Susanna. Hi. In conversation with Dame Hermione Lee, Emeritus Professor of English Literature at the University of Oxford and celebrated biographer of Fitzgerald, as well as Wolf Wharton and most recent Tom Stoppard. Hello, Hermione. Hello. Susanna and Hermione will speak for 45 minutes or so, after which we'll turn to your questions post them in the event chat or the Q&A as and when they occur to you. Over to you, Hermione. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. And I want to say thank you to you, Sam, for having edited this volume of Penelope Fitzgerald's pieces for the Laundry of Books. And I also want to thank uh, Penelope Fitzgerald's executor, Terence Dooley, who is looking after her posthumous life and we hope her many revivals. So Susanna and I agreed that before we started talking, it would be a good idea for me to just do a sort of brief resume uh, to set the scene in case not everyone is familiar with Penelope Fitzgerald's life and work. She was born in 1916 and she died in 2000. She started publishing books in 1975 around the age of 60. She wrote nine novels, three biographies of the painter Burne Jones, of her father and uncles, the Knox brothers, and of the poet Charlotte Mew, some remarkable stories, a few poems, many letters, and numerous fine essays and reviews, of which about 20 are in this volume. She became famous at 80, so this is a sort of hopeful story. Um, her novels are short and hard to pin down. She wrote about her own life, but she kept herself carefully concealed. 
She changed direction radically in her last four novels, Innocence, The Beginning of Spring, The Gate of Angels and The Blue Flower. They moved from using the material of her own life to creating astonishingly vivid and compressed historical worlds. All four, I think, are strange and original masterpieces, and they're all placed at a point of transition when everything seemed possible. Russia before the revolution in the beginning of spring, post-war Italy in innocence, the moment of new discoveries in science before the First World War in the Gate of Angels, the very first stirrings of romanticism in Blue Flower. She's an elusive writer. Her art lay in reticence and self-effacement, but her views were strong. She was cryptic as well as principled. Her writing is unsettling and her style is plain, compact and subtle. She never shows off. She leaves much unsaid. There's often a sense of something withheld in her novels, as though not everything can be explained. She likes to exercise her wit and she likes her readers to have their wits about them. In her life and in her books, there are secrets and mysteries and evasions. There's great sadness in her work, but also irresistible humour and comedy. She's very funny and wry as well as tender, and one can see that in, in these reviews. She was descended from two remarkable families, Hickses and Knoxes, who were a mixture of bishops, writers, classicists, codebreakers and priests, all of them with rigorous high principles, a strong work ethic, eccentric enthusiasms and emotional complexities. Her father, Evo Knox, was the editor of Punch. So she was a brilliantly clever young girl with natural literary talents and an outstanding student at Oxford in the 1930s, where she studied English and was known as the Blonde Bombshell. She went to work for the BBC in wartime and she married a young lawyer of an Irish Catholic family, Desmond Fitzgerald, who had a terrible war from which she came back traumatised. Instead of becoming a writer, as she'd fully intended to be at Oxford, she spent about 30 years bringing up their three children and living through periods of considerable personal difficulties and hardships. After a promising start to married life in Hampstead, there was a precipitous fall through the nets of middle-class life, which included being evicted from a rented house in Suffolk, living on a leaky barge on the Thames, which sank a long period in council housing, many years hard work as a teacher, and the death of her husband when he was only 59. It wasn't until she was nearing 60 that she started writing novels and biographies, though it's clear that she was thinking about and working towards writing all her life. And these pieces that she wrote for the LRB come out of a long apprenticeship as a student editor of an Oxford magazine, as a contributor to Punch, a script writer for the BBC, and the co-editor and contributor to her short-lived literary magazine edited with her husband Desmond, World Review. Recognition for her as a novelist grew slowly from 1977. When she won the Booker Prize in 1979 with Offshore, many people treated the decision dismissively as though it were a kind of joke or a mistake. But by the time her last novel, The Blue Flower, was published in 1995, she had a large devoted following and was thought of as one of the most remarkable writers of her time. So I thought just before we started talking, I'd drop her voice in your ears with a few sentences of hers that may perhaps set the tone as we talk about her. So here they are. I don't see how this world is to be managed if we don't pity each other. I am drawn to people who seem to have been born defeated 
or even profoundly lost. If a story begins with finding, it must end with searching. I am drawn to whatever is spare, subtle and economical. Experiences aren't given us to be got over, otherwise they would hardly be experiences. And so on. <laughs> I'll contain myself from quoting anymore, but perhaps we'll come back to, to quoting her. Susanna, do you want to talk about being her editor? Yes, well, I was interested in seeing this uh, selection, how early on in the paper's life she started to write, and I see that I must have written to her almost as soon as the paper started, which is in 1979, um, and got a, a story, a sort of semi-autobiographical story. I must, I must have been reading her before then. Well, you say I was her editor. Um, I wasn't the only person who worked on her pieces, but more importantly, there was very little to do. Um, she was always wrote to time. Um, she always wrote to length, her length, which was shorter than most other people's. Mm. And she never really needed anything. Doing. I would just be changing a sort of a, a Z to an S in terms of her style or something like that. She was extraordinarily clear. She was pungent. She was precise. And she had in her journalism, as she does in her books, I think the, the knack of what is sometimes, I think, ill-advisedly called miniaturism. In other words, she would um, focus in a small space and in apparently small, which often means a female subject, a large uh, vortex of emotions and ideas. In other words, there was compression there and there was absence, if you like. But really, she was, it was more than that. I think she miniaturized only in the sense that um, atomic science scientists are miniaturized. Yes, that's a very good parallel because she is so interested in science as well as mm. in the arts. Mm. Did, she, did she, sorry, did, did she suggest things to you that she wanted to review? Well, very much so. I mean, I think uh, clearly there are broad areas in which one would turn to at the beginning of the 20th century as a particular area of interest. But she had, uh, she was very practical. So that if she was, when she was researching her Russian subject at the beginning of spring, for example, she put in to do Russian books. So she'd be writing about Akhmatova and so on and so forth. Uh, she was always like that. She was always very professional. As you say in your biography, writing on the back of her father's galley proofs that punch and so on. What was so interesting, and I was very conscious of in looking this selection, was how unpredictable she was, both in her judgments and in the areas in which she was interested. For example, I didn't think it was me or anybody else on the paper who suggested to her that she should write about Roddy Doyle. Mm. I came from her. She was a tremendous fan, wrote about him very well, and also a fan, by the way, of James Kelman. Now, these two, um, a lot of literary minds, uh, people that Fitzgerald and Kelman, are at the far ends of the spectrum in terms of, as it were, scabrousness of language and apparent subject matter and so on. But she really went at it and produced some extraordinarily fine and precise judgments. I mean, to say, for example, to praise Roddy Doyle, for example, in a piece which is, I think, called Fried Nappy, rather brilliant headline, um, <laughs> to praise him for his fineness, his delicacy of feeling. Yes. It's almost an 
is almost the last thing you would expect. I mean, she's entirely right, but you have to think twice. So yes, it was. She very much presented her own interests, and quite often didn't particularly like them. Tried to get out of, as is apparent from some of the Vaudian in the prefatory material to the pieces published here. Tried to get out of some of the things we sent them. Yes, it's very interesting that you pick up the Roddy Doyle piece, and I think when she was a Booker judge, she was very keen on on advancing his 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 claims. But she and I think that phrase delicacy of feeling that she uses about him is very very striking. But she's also very good about the dialogue because you would you would you might imagine if you didn't know her work that you know here's this sort of middle class lady writer, and if you get her wrong, you might think that she was sort of rather you know, Jane Austen-ish, uh, as it were, in the kind of caricatured way of thinking about Jane Austen. But one thing she's really good at is why he and James Kelman are using this very raw, raucous diction with lots and lots of swearing. And she's not in the least bit put off or shocked by it. She's very, very interested in it as a form of realism uh, and as a way of uh, getting these characters onto the page. Absolutely. I think one also mustn't underestimate the influence on her. She worked, as you said, for the BBC, and she was very interested in the theatre as well. And that does run through her work. She does do an enormous amount with dialogue. Um, she's much less obviously descriptive, both here, both in her journalism and in her novels, than one might think. I mean, in the way, in the way that you say. And she has a tremendous feeling for rhythm. Um, for the rhythm of speech, which comes out very clearly when she's talking about poetry, it comes out very clearly in the in the new book. She analyzes rhythm and responds to it in a way that very few um, reviewers and critics do. I think. Yes, that's interesting. And she, yeah, and she's good. She's very good in the in these pieces on technical matters. Um, so there's a review of um, Anne Enright. Um, where she talks about how good she is at dialogue. Um, and when she's, there's a lovely piece about Sylvia Townsend Warner, uh, which perhaps um, you'd like to maybe read a little bit from, but that she's terribly funny about how good Sylvia Townsend Warner is at things, ordinary banal things. So she said, nobody has ever described a teapot better than Sylvia Townsend Warner. Be nice to hear a bit of that. Yeah, well, there are two books. I don't know whether I should read them both now. Let me read, um, well, I will do, that they, they seem to me to illustrate different, different points, actually. Um, the, the first is, they're both very good examples of how crisp and um, profound, really, she is as a critic. Um, and it also, the, the first extract illustrates how elegantly she could bat aside somebody who wasn't doing all that well. She never did it with, um, it was with extreme um, pungency, and um, she didn't pull her, she didn't hold back, um, but it was never done um, with self-aggrandizement. I, mean, I think that's a fundamental thing about these books. You never feel, as you so often do with reviewers, that they're reviewing a book which they think secretly they ought to have written. Um, <laughs> no, that's not her. Anyway, but but she nearly always knows more than the person who has written the book if it's a non-fiction book. So she's very good at putting out absences. In that sense, she's a truly constructive critic because she actually makes you imagine a more perfect book. 
Anyway, here she is on this um, this book about uh, Sylvia Townsend Warner. And um, yeah, editing this volume was clearly a labor of love and not an easy one for William Maxwell. Unfortunately, he has cut and edited the letters on a system peculiar to himself. Quote, I've used three dots unbracketed to indicate an omission at the beginning of a letter. I've not used three dots to indicate that there is more than the last sentence. <laughs> it's completely bewildering. She just leaves it there. Uh, very funny. Uh, and disappointingly, there is only a sketchy index. Addicts of collected letters will tell him that this is a serious mistake. STW's index would have read in part, celibacy, STW recommends, clearing up STW's passion for Coal shed, T.H. White's diaries lost in. Cold bath, S.T.W. advises if piano kept in bathroom. <laughs> Contra Sambeuve, S.T.W. translates. I mean, it's it's a whole book in itself, isn't it? It's a whole sort of skeleton of a book. Well, it's it's terribly funny and and sharp, and it reminds me, of course, of her indexed to her own book about her family, about her father and her uncles, the Knox brothers, where she where she goes to town with her index and clearly had a wonderful time doing it and has entries like temper, loss of, or understatement, tendency to. So it's very much the same kind of joke, actually. I, I love it when she puts the boot in, 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 an, in, in a sort of immaculately quiet way. So one biographer, um, I won't quote. I won't say who it is. Um, it is described as writing with quote calm and flat-footed perseverance. Knows exactly what she means. Um, but she doesn't reserve her her sort of sharp tone for living writers. There's also at one point there's a marvelous um, remark about great the greatest novelists, and she's actually writing about Joyce. But I'm not sure she's necessarily thinking about Joyce. She says. The greatest novelists, those who stand in the way of all subsequent comers, threaten them with bankruptcy, which is a, which is actually a very brilliant and profound remark, uh, couched lightly about, you know, the force of some writers and how difficult it is to get out from from under their shadow. And what and some of the people that she's really interested in in these reviews the LRB, either because she's asked to write about them or you or someone else had, had asked her if she would, um, are writers who not necessarily described as eccentrics, um, but they don't necessarily fit into a major canon. So she's very interested in Rebecca West and her great energies and her independence. She's very interested in Sylvia Townsend Warner. She's very interested and very good on D.B. Smith, who was a friend of hers. Uh, and who says she was not just a, you know, a, um, a, a good person to be in a room with, an interesting person to be in a room with, but also a good friend, which is not, as Fitzgerald points out, always the same thing. Exactly. Yes. And uh, um, I think it's interesting. You're quite right. I, mean, I can completely agree with you. She does. She likes to champion people who um, she considers undervalued. Um, but she's unusual in that. She, she champions the people who are truly undervalued. I mean, in other words, again, it's a typical self-aggrandizement of a reviewer to pick somebody who's apparently neglected 
who's a sort of towering figure that could come out under the auspices of the rather mighty reviewer who then endows her, it's often her, with a glow of their magnificent adjectives. She's not like that at all. I mean, she actually really finds people, I mean, Charlotte New is a very good example um, of, of somebody who I, I think I'm not alone in considering somebody who's I mean, the level of Thomas Hardy, who, who yes. admired her so much. Um, and, and in writing about her, she, uh, Fitzgerald writes about her in a way that I think nobody, I, I haven't, there's apparently been another biography since her, which I haven't read, I very much liked her, but um, she writes about her in a way that, that most people wouldn't perhaps. I think in other words, she doesn't undo the, the real force of the feeling, the sense of um, uh, an unconscious and yet also of skill. She never treats her as an eccentric. Um, I mean, the word wouldn't sort of come in, I doubt what it is in, in the book. Uh, it's just terribly easy to patronise somebody like, um, or matronise somebody like, uh, like yes. me. She, she really makes a case for her. Again, by analysing her, it's really close. And she's, as you say, terribly good on the poems and terribly good on the, 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 the living rhythm of the poems. It's also a dark story, uh, the story of Charlotte Mew in many ways. It's a story of, of, of madness and suicide and unhappy death and frustrated love and, um, and not fitting in. And she doesn't shirk that. She doesn't, she's a very unflinching writer, Penelope Fitzgerald, in her novels as well as in her reviews. Um, and she doesn't walk round uh, the darkness of the stories, uh, the darkness of the, of the story of Charlotte Mew or the darkness of the poems. And I notice in quite a lot of these reviews, um, whether she's reviewing, you know, Wild Swans, the heartbreaking book about Chinese history, or whether she's reviewing a life of Archbishop Benson, she's very sharp to notice forms of human cruelty. Um, and how brutal and savage people can be to each other. And she's also very good, as in the novels, on the vulnerability of children um, who are not loved or children who are not being looked after. And there is a kind of unloved childishness about Charlotte Mew all through her life, partly because she's so tiny, um, which, she, which she gets hold of uh, tremendously well, I think. There's also, I mean, she doesn't use the word feminism, I don't think ever, and she doesn't use the word feminist, but you can see in some of these pieces, as when, for instance, she's writing about Sylvia Townsend Warner or Rebecca West, um, there is a very strong feeling for the injustices done to women uh, and the, the bravery and courage of women who are standing out against that. I was very struck in one piece about George Bernard Shaw and a long correspondence he has with a woman who wrote to him that she quotes Shaw uh, talking about um, the home as the girl's prison, the woman's workhouse, late 19th century. And that's something that you, you will get a feeling of in, in some of the novels as well. Yeah, it comes out also in a, in a slightly different way in the discussion of Radcliffe Hall as well which is extremely, extremely interesting, I think. Um, and it's interesting what you're saying about children, because she has somewhere, I can't remember, I think, it, I can't remember which novel it's in, perhaps you do, um, this idea that children's lives are regulated in an entirely different system to, to adults. Yes. And 
he describes, I mean, in At Fredericks and in other um, systematic drama school and in some of the other novels, children on their own, in a way I've never quite heard before. It's completely authentic. You absolutely believe it. Um, yeah, and I think it's absolutely. And she, she, um, I don't think anyone does that actually, apart from her. I think it's extraordinary. And she has a. It's interesting also in her her style, which is it's not. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of it in looking up some of the postcards that that uh, she sent to me when we were um, corresponding about what she was writing. It's almost you wouldn't say it was naive. But it's certainly not naive. It's very sophisticated, um, but it has a, an apparent simplicity, an apparent transparency. I was trying to think what the what the quality of it is, and it's almost as if everything was somehow emblematic. You know, I think the religious feeling, the feeling for the other life, was extraordinarily intense in her. But it goes with an absolutely um, Tightly focused clarity on the uh, on the individual again atoms of things as well. Yes. But it's you can feel a pressure from underneath building up. You know that there's it's it's an extraordinary feeling. You know she never she never has to spell anything out because she's done it with a with a of an adjective or the rhythm of a sentence. Want to pick up two two things that we've been talking about uh, just maybe before we leave the the essays and go on and talk perhaps a bit more about the the, the fiction, um, which is her her feeling for children and the sense of whether people have grown up properly or not, uh, and also that mixture that you've just touched on there, which I think is so profoundly important about her work, which is this mixture of something spiritual, something mystical, something mysterious, and the very real and the very ordinary and matter of fact. And I just wanted, um, before we leave the essays, to read a little bit from uh, her piece about one of my, fav my favorite books, which is Alain Fournier's novel, Le Grand Monde, which appeals to her very much, um, and which centers on a mysterious domain or house full of children, which one of the characters in the book finds and falls in love there. But seems never to be able to refine. Um, and I'll just read you a short bit of what Fitzgerald says about this book. The oddness and the great beauty of Le Grand Monde come partly from the dissonance of its elements. James Barry noted in 1922 that long after writing Peter Pan, its true meaning came back to me, desperate attempt to grow up, but can't. Le Grand Monde is about adolescents who want to want not to grow up but fail. Alain Fournier divides himself between his three main characters, Surel, the, the ambiguous onlooker, Mourne, the romantic, and France, the spoilt son of the domain. Mourne disturbs forever the quiet existence of the school at Saint Agathe, that strange school where the pupils range from the petite class to the 18-year-old studying for a teacher's certificate. One of them, Jasmine Delouche, goes bird nesting at the age of 20. This school, set in its reassuringly familiar French village, the blacksmiths, the wash house, the smell of the boys crowding round the stove, is the only place of security in the book. Any venture into the world means loss. Mourne can't find his way back to the domain. 
France loses his child fiancé, his parents can't find France, Mon can't find France, Surel in the end loses everything, even the child he had hoped to bring up as his own, while Mon loses the purity of vision which gives him the right to search at all. Gradually, however, it appears that the mysterious domain is, with, is within easy distance of Nancy, where Surel's uncle keeps a large grocery store. It could always have been found, as in the end it is, without difficulty. And that's an extraordinary piece of writing for a review, isn't it? I mean, it's a piece of writing that could have come straight out of a novel. And I think it brings in a lot of the novel, the novel, the themes of her novels. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's extraordinary to me when looking through these, how often um, a, an absolutely enormously lofty, um, not quite the same thing as you're saying, but it's side of it, I think, um, abstract notion is thrown out in an aside. I mean, she herself said, I think it was her father or someone else, that everything important she says in an aside. And in a way, that is also true of her. Um, but some of the things are absolutely mind-boggling. I was trying to look up the thing that she said about Anne Enright's um, work, fusing the, and I've lost the quote. Um, well, I won't, I won't detain us here. But, but um, she, she talks about a sort of melding of time and speech and space in the work and it, it's I mean she's produced a whole subject for a for a series of PhD theses <laughs> just in you know in, in this apparently um you know, throw, throw away throw away sentence um Sarah, actually, when you when you look back on the when you look back on the novels do you, do you have, I mean, obviously, At Freddy's must appeal to you somewhat because of this extraordinary account of the, the children in the drama school. Um, but I wonder if you have a favourite or whether there's one that has lingered, if only fragmentarily, in your mind for a long time, whether there are novels of hers that haunt you. There are, there are several. Um, I'm slightly different from most people in as much as I actually like the, well, I have a special feeling for The Gate of Angels, which comes out with the, the context of what I'm about to say, because that was on the, the shortlist the year I judged the book. And um, I was very pleased that it was there. I remember Henry Mantel, was, who was a fellow judge, also a great supporter of it. Um, but it was treated with um, some disdain by the subsequent commentators on the, on the list. I mean, at that point, there was a rather gruesome process whereby there was a huge fandango on the telly, after which there was another sort of gruesome fandango where a lot of us, I see it perhaps wrongly in my soured retrospect, uh, male dons came on to trash the list. And um, they certainly didn't think that this was a, a good inclusion. And I remember somebody coming into the office actually at that point and saying it was a unusual list because there were three well, at that point there were three women on the shortlist and somebody came into the office and said oh I see you have to be called Penelope to be on the shortlist this year now of course Penelope uh, at that point you saw how highly charged with misanthropy um, the use of her name was I mean it was uh, it was uh, as if you're saying you have to be somebody mm -hmm. embroidering a sampler 
to be on this. Anyway, I nevertheless have a strong feeling about that book, which seems to me wonderfully both particular and resonant in, in its conjuring up of, of both scientific process um, and the way it can sweep through a world and disrupt not only people's minds but their hearts um, and their adjectives. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. What I was going to say earlier was that I'm slightly different from some people in as much as I tend to like the earlier novels. In other words, I tend to like novels which are not based on, on known recognisable data. So that most, a lot of people consider The Blue Flower her masterpiece, and I actually don't. I see it's a wonderful novel, but to me it has designs of greatness on me. Um, and an almost willful evasion sometimes in the way that it's written, or a, a willful obliqueness that don't appeal to me as much as some of the early ones. I love Offshore and The Bookshop. Well, you're not alone. I mean, uh, the, the, the Bookshop has been a huge favourite among reading groups, for instance, for many years. And, and uh, yes, I, t I share your I, I tend to, my favourite Fitzgerald novel tends to be the one I'm reading at the time, actually. I find it very difficult to choose. But what, what you say about the Gate of Angels and indeed about the condescension that greeted it in certain quarters, that's another matter. But the novel, um, I love the way it begins in a high wind in Cambridge with two undergraduates sort of shouting an argument to each other on their bikes as they're bicycling along in this very high wind and one of them shouts back to the other thought is blood <laughs> and it's characteristically baffling and strange and you're you're immediately right inside the lives of these people at this particular time in in cambridge where science is changing and there's a big debate going on about materialism versus spirituality and also about the nature of consciousness. Um, and what I love about the book is that it is very deeply rooted in ordinary, everyday, real life, particularly of Daisy, the nurse and her mum, and you know the difficulties and the struggles that they have. Uh, but there is also some something strange going on and some very peculiar sense increasingly towards the end of the book that they're, they're is a possibility of something beyond our ken or beyond the real world that we know about. Um, and there's even, you know, in a, in a gruesome way as well as in a good way. I mean, there's a there's a sort of M. R. James arrogant in the in the book, and there's a kind of hideous, frightening M. R. James story invented by Penelope Fitzgerald in the in the middle of the of the book. And there's a kind of miracle at the end you can treat it as a miracle if you want to and she was you know she was a believer in in this the supernatural sounds kind of sensational but she was a believer in in there are more things on heaven and earth horatio uh though that there's a poltergeist there's a very convincing poltergeist um in the bookshop and i remember interviewing her and saying politely there are people. I didn't say me. You know, so there are people who probably wouldn't 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 credit this. You know, and she looked at me very slightly, scornfully, and very matter-of-factly, and said, "Well, they weren't there." So she has a sort of matter-of-fact attitude to what is not ordinary, to, to what to what can be strange. It's also, I think, Gate of Angels are wonderfully. Um, 
wonderfully evocative novel about the difficulties for women and the injustices done to women. I mean, it is, you know, it's a, it's a feminist novel, I think, The Gate of Angels in many ways. Absolutely. I think also, I think it's uh, the, to go back to the ghost elements, as it were, um, I, I noticed here that she turned down um, reviewing one book, The Bead Centre, on the basis that it contains angels. And she said, I think it's sort of dismissive about angels. If you're going to put angels into a book, you have to take them seriously. And yes. of course, I mean, she's entirely right, because what is the point of trashing an angel? You know, it just doesn't make any, any sense. She was deeply serious in that way, while apparently, um, while being never, ever heavy handed or heavy footed herself. Um, but all and there is to mention. And, and there is an angel actually in the novel, which I like more than you do, The Blue Flower. Um, and again, one of the things I think is absolutely astonishing about The Blue Flower is the way that it matches up, you know, big, thick, early 19th century German meals and households and food and money. Um, and, you know, the, the thick quotidian quality of everyday life and these, uh, these very strange dreamlike musings and mystical quest, a sort of quest going on, the quest for the blue flower indeed, um, and a character who is a kind of angel actually in the book, a little boy, uh, and you you accept these different levels and it's, it's a very brilliant technique that creates these different levels, very hard to see how she does it and I think the in a way, the key transition point was the book you like so much, the biography of Charlotte Mew, which is a sort of hinge between the books where she's writing, drawing on her own life, and the and the his, the, the books that are set in historical periods. And she has a, some interesting things to say about ventriloquism and writing in sort of almost like musical fragments, or writing almost as if in a dream world. And she's clearly thinking about that with Mew's own work. And I think it leads her on to, there's a different, there's a different tone of voice, I think, in some of the, the later books than in the early ones. It's very interesting, that thing about, yes, the ventriloquial thing, which I think goes back to this, partly this interest in, in drama and radio and so on, I mean, just practically. Um, but also the interest in uh, sort of imminence, if you like, or, or something beyond mere practical details. But also this idea, I think, that what you were saying about the contradictions, I think is absolutely fundamental to her, because uh, she never saw, I think it's absolutely fundamental, it comes up in the Sylvia Townsend Warner, Warner essay, there was never any contradiction in her between, as for many people there seems to be, between strong-mindedness and um, an empathetic generosity. Um, and that seems to me really, I mean, I just to, to go back to that, um, that essay for a second, um, it seems to me really fundamental and something that just these, these opening sentences actually are almost give you one a philosophy of life. Now you can't very often say that of a book. Her sharp wittedness had always become more rather than less sympathetic to other lives, past or present, birds and animals as well. In a tiny lyric, winter is an old beggar standing motionless in the field. All day he will linger, watching with mild blue eyes. The birds die of hunger. Loneliness, I think, she considered after mature reflection, the worst suffering of all. 
is at the heart of her finest poem. I won't read the rest of it because we're, we haven't got that much time. But I, I mean, I just looked at that and I thought, well, actually, yes, fundamentally, that's what I believe as well. Um, and to have uh, in just, again, the beginning of a paragraph, just to touch off the idea that, um, and again, it's in a way a profoundly feminist idea, that intelligence need not be at war with softer feeling. I mean, on the contrary, mm. not just enhance it, it can propel it, is something yes. really profound. But there's no profundities flagged up there. And and one thing I noticed as you were reading it, and that, that which extends into the novels as well, which is that it's not just empathy for people. Uh, there's also a tremendous empathy for nature and the natural world in Fitzgerald, and I think that that's something that people could might want to say think more about as time goes by and as the importance of our relation to nature increasingly comes at us in such a dramatic way every day of our lives. I mean, the, I'm thinking about the way in which the atmosphere of Suffolk and the creatures in Suffolk in the bookshop are, are tremendously beautifully and feelingly uh, described. Um, and how in the beginning of spring, that sense of spring coming under the ice, you, um, you feel it very strongly all the way through. There's a very strange scene towards the end of that novel where in the middle of the night in a circle of birch trees where there appears to be some yeah. meeting you're not quite sure what it is it's wonderfully unexplained or underexplained but that feeling of the trees and the night is you know I, my my skin lifts as i think about it it is absolutely beautiful and and um, yeah empathetic actually as if she's making herself disappear inside the creatures and the landscapes that she's writing about Absolutely, and actually, it occurs to me as you say that, and, and we talk about the the contentious blue flower. I like the blue flower, by the way. It's just that I don't. No, I'm it's sorry. Not <laughs> um, but you know that begins with washing in it and wind, um, and the Book of Angels begins with with wind again, actually, with wind, and um, as you say, with bicycles and so on. But also very early on with cows chewing anti-clockwise. So it's as if yes. actually everything. Um, as if a contrarian um, aspect and philosophy and emotion has permeated absolutely everything in the world and everything is is fused somehow. But it occurred to me, both in both those novels and in others, how much she conveys and how much often at the very beginning of novels she conveys with just a sort of sudden natural history or natural physical description, just in one moment. Um, it's very, it's very physical. Again, not what is is often, I think, perhaps enough said of her. Um, and and not... you're quite right about that picture of the world upside down. She loves to do that. She loves to turn things on uh, on their head and and surprise you. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I think it's time in our world, our virtual world, uh, to ask Sam to come back to us and bring in the audience, because I'm sure there will be questions. So we'll put ourselves in Sam's capable hands. He's still there. Here he is. I am still there. Hello. <laughs> we do have some really good questions. Um, uh, a question from Patsy uh, to, to both of you, I guess. Um, do you feel that writers like Penelope are the product of several generations of thinkers? The accumulation of morality and reality and understatement, or is it just a life experience? Gosh. Susanna? <laughs> Uh, well, um, what do I think? Well, the trouble is, I think they're not necessarily oppositions, those, are they? I think, well, I mean, life experience is, you know, necessarily infected by or affected by generations of thinkers and so on. I think that she was consciously affected by thinkers. I mean, she was a genuine intellectual. That was the, um, if that's not a paradox, she was an intellectual. Um, I mean, she she really did read and decide about what she read, and that influenced how she thought. How she wrote, um, I think, was an, a much, well, a different question, um, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking a more instinctive and um, immediate one. Does that go anywhere near touching that extremely complicated question. I, I think that's very, very good and interesting and, and true. And I, I, I mean, I'm very aware, having written her biography, uh, that there was an enormous and very powerful and rather dominant family um, yeah. tradition of uh, extremely high intelligence and high level thinking, whether it was Dilwyn Knox code breaking at Bletchley um, or Ronald Knox you know, writing the Catholic Bible, um, uh, chancellor, chancellor giving, making, doing a new translation of the Bible, um, uh, and, and her own father writing absolutely brilliantly for Punch through most of his life. I mean, he's a wonderful writer. So she had big examples to live up to, uh, and those aren't all of them. She also was teaching for many years, and I had the very good luck, thanks to her family and to her executor, I was I was privileged to see a lot of those teaching books, some of which were still covered in the stains of the water of the River Thames, where they had been fished out of the sinking barge, um, uh, where you can see that her teaching, although she complained about it and got fed up with it, was also a kind of workshop for her, and it's terribly interesting to see the annotations in her books. I was particularly surprised. I mean, we were talking earlier about some of the surprising people that she liked and recommended. I mean, I was—I had no idea before I did this reading that she was absolutely mad about Beckett, and read the whole of Beckett and annotated Beckett and wrote a lot of notes on him. And you know, when people describe Penelope Fitzgerald as a sort of lady novelist alongside, I don't know, Barbara Pym, uh, I want to say, no, she's much more like Samuel Beckett, or indeed much more like Turgenev, um, or Moriak, or, you know, she's, um, 
she's a deeply European and Russian in, interested writer. So there are all these influences. There's a family influence. There's the experience of teaching. There's an enormous range of reading. As you say, she always had read more than anybody else who was ever reviewing or indeed of the, the books themselves she was writing about. But then she is a true original. And I so go back to Pat's to, and Patsy's point, which part, part of which might have been pointed towards the question of whether she's in a um, as, it, uh, as it were, a tradition of women writers, as it were. Um, I, I think that isn't exactly, well, I think that the whole idea of that has to be resisted to some extent. Um, but there is an interesting question about whether early on in this century, uh, last century rather, um, there were two things happening in writing by women, I would argue. Um, that one was that there was a, a realist and, and expansive and um, probably socially conscious tradition and then there were another another tradition and I would put uh, they're not the same sort of writers exactly but they have something in common Beryl Bainbridge and Penelope Fitzgerald who tended to write skinnier books um, uh, and with a, a warrior prose um, and it's very interesting and also both dramatic I mean it comes in as they've got a lot in common but yes. um for the bracketing, but but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not bracketing. Then when I was, I started off, I've completely, in a Fitzgeraldian way, contradicted myself because I began by saying, you know, that they, they're absolutely, it was completely wrong to do this, and then I've ended up bracketing them. Um, but I think, well, I think that whole sort of tradition thing has is an interesting question. But the Beckett thing, I hadn't thought of. There is a sort of absurdist. Vain, you might say to some of her, um, some of her writing. Um, comes um, up for questions. Sorry. Um, we have a question from Chad, who I believe has joined the event from Los Angeles, which might be the, the winning entry for the furthest, uh, <laughs> furthest away attendee. Um, he asks, were there any early efforts with fiction that Fitzgerald considered full starts before the famous late start? I wouldn't know her mind. There are there are a few things in 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 uh, that that didn't see uh, the light of day. Actually, not so much in fiction, but interestingly, she was for a time planning to write a biography of L. P. Hartley, uh, who was a friend of hers, and she found it a difficult enterprise. I mean, I think partly family family complexities around Hartley, and uh, she sort of slightly gave up her feeling that she could do it. There are there are also um, some tryouts, um, some stories that she thought might turn into novels and didn't. And there was also a plan to write a book about the poetry bookshop, which was a big important place for her in her youth. And in the end, that turns into a bit of Charlotte Mew. So she didn't altogether abandon that. Thanks. Um, Samantha asks, uh, I love what Susanna said about empathetic generosity. Um, could both of you speak of how this kind of generosity might alter or expand from fiction to criticism to biography as Fitzgerald wore those various hats? I think it, I'm very conscious of that in, in the Charlotte New book because um, Hermione is very interesting about the way in which Fitzgerald both does and doesn't identify with her characters. And of course she says, Fitzgerald herself says, you don't have to be like your own books. But what is, is so interesting to me about that particular book 
was it was the first biography in which I was conscious of of it being not an act of imitation, but an unselfconsciously mimetic biography. Um, it's uh, like new, um, slightly elusive. It's elliptical, but absolutely charged with feeling. So that I just felt that I'd been given a direct um, bloodline into her character, it, completely extraordinary. And and I think that's um, I and I, that that's true of that book, and it's true in little in nearly all the pieces of of um, the, the reviews we have here, and also in the things that she is so good at pointing out that people have omitted. Um, which is sometimes that comes up as an actually, if one were the author of the book, one would want to go away and probably give up. But it's never done with a sort of torrential, as I think of it, a sort of theatre critic's adjectival explosion. Uh, it's simply done by demonstrating how what has been omitted. So, for example, she says of one um, obviously not very satisfactory book about wartime experiences in London, what pity that. She didn't explore some dimensions. For example, I myself remember um, mm. the, um, the unforgettable kiss, glass being swept up after a bombing raid. And you see in an instant, you're absolutely there in that bombing raid. And that seems to me both uh, the, the example is empathetic and yes. the way she's demonstrated the criticism is empathetic. Yes, that's a very good example. I'm glad you mentioned that thing about her saying she doesn't, you know, she doesn't have to be like her characters or be inside her characters. It's very noticeable that the the novels are not written in the first person. Um, there is that entry into a third person narrative, and in that sense, they they somewhat resemble the biographies that she wrote. They're not entirely distinct from them. And the in terms of empathy, I'm very struck. I was calling to mind from the question. A scene in The Gate of Angels where Frank, the Englishman who owns a printing business in Moscow, uh, is, is in the building when the Russians who work with him are blessing the objects in the printing house. There is a day when they bless printing press and everything around the press. That's what they do. And Frank is watching this and Penelope Fitzgerald makes him say to himself, uh, because he didn't believe this doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> and I think this is a marvellous crux in, in Fitzgerald's work. We might not believe in someone else's way of thinking, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Mm. That's empathy. Yeah. Um, there's two questions here that I'm going to bring together because maybe one explains the other or maybe it doesn't. Um, James asks, I've noticed this too, I've read multiple quotes on the back of her novels asking variations of the question, how does she do it? <laughs> how do you think she captured such different worlds so well? And Karen asks, um, can you say more about how the hardships of her adult life, especially up to the age of 60, may have influenced her writing? Two very different questions, actually, I think. Um, but you know, brilliant to try and yoke them together. <laughs> I think I well just very briefly because I can see we're com we're coming towards the end. I mean, uh, uh, and how does she do it? I might pass over to Susanna. But in terms of the relationship between the difficulties of her life and and the work, um, 
that is clear to see actually because one of the very striking things about Fitzgerald as a writer is how she will sit on really painful and difficult experiences that happen to her and she will take her time and she will then transform them into a wonderfully calm and mastered pieces of work. So there's a translation going on there, which I admire very much indeed, and was one of the things I was trying to get at when I wrote a biography of her. In terms of how does she do it, I, yes, I spent a long time thinking about that, and I still think there is something wonderfully mysterious and ineffable about what she does. I th yes, I think the sort of characteristic effect, in a way, is um, it's of, of omission and ellipsis. Um, and is it, uh, you feel there's a sort of dart or an arrow or a, a rainbow between two very precise moments. Um, and you realise, I mean, there's never an explanation, or very rarely an explanation, and she gives very good description, which you quote uh, in your biography, of, of going out and taking stuff out because it's condescending to, to the reader to explain too much, and so on and so forth. Sometimes some people think that's overdone, but a lot of the time what you actually get is this sense of something else going on, which isn't exactly uniting these two things into which you've been drawn so closely but is connecting them, um, and which is to do with, well, it's called the imagination, I suppose. Mm. But it has, an effect of, it has an effect of wit. It has an effect, as you were so interested in me saying, about Beckett, of absurdity sometimes, um, and, uh, and often effects of, of reaching out. I mean, she's very, very good on hope. I mean, yes. again, going back to the Roddy Doyle, you know, she talks about, 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 uh, the wonderful exhilaration of some of these books coming from the fact that people actually had expectations. It doesn't matter that they're dashed, they actually had the damn thing. Um, and so you actually feel yanked up. Yanked is, is too violent a word, certainly to use that phrase. Elevated, really, by, by what she says. But often, uh, as one is amused, let me just say, I mean, this is, it, it's, as I think this often does have the effect of wit, putting two peculiar things side by side. Yes. And to quote from one, and it's a, it's a banal in a way, but I think lovely postcard. She sent me, um, when I was convalescing from something, um, and she was at Dartington. It's, it's, it's significant, I thought, significant, interesting to me, postcard she sent. It's a picture from Dartington of Imogen Holst, violently or vigorously conducting. She says, Michael Neve, who was one of the early friends of the London Review of Books and for many years on the editorial board, Michael Neve was down here at the festival. Beautiful weather, but he had the only room with a bath. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but that somehow is Penelope. I mean, what a lot in... in Without saying so, that, that sums up what she thinks about him too. Um, I, I, she used to make a joke that uh, her publishers complained all the time that her books were too short. She said, you know, I, 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 I can't do anything about this because I've already taken things out and I, I really can't make them any longer. But you knew really that she didn't mind about them being too short. 
Well, I was, I was actually going to try and sneak in a question of my own about that because um, a, a criticism that's uh, often levelled at the LRB these days is that the pieces have become too long. Um, and I'm I sort of felt very conscious reading Penelope's pieces of how how much she she does with 1800 words, but it made me think that there was a sort of maybe a generation of novelists who were able to to write both critical writing and novels of a, of a length that that sort of um, somehow transcends its apparent concision. I mean, Bridget Brophy, you could say the same thing about, um, and maybe Anita Bruckner. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you think that that, that art has, has, um, has somehow died or, or is in terminal decline, um, and whether that's strange considering that supposedly, you know, attention spans are <laughs> getting shorter and, and brevity is becoming the way that we communicate with ourselves, with, with each other more. It just seems like to be a slightly strange 20th, 21st century transition phenomenon. It's interesting. I mean, I actually, my experience, but it's a long time since I've been involved with literary editing, um, there aren't many novelists who write good criticism and vice versa, and a lot of people stay away from it anyway um, for, for practical and often self-promoting reasons as well, because they don't want to attack somebody who might attack them, um, or for, for prudent reasons, which is that you know, they haven't got the they haven't got the time, but also for the simple reason that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who are engaged in imaginative writing, don't want to turn to an analytical mode, um, or don't find it easy to when they're doing something else. I think she was unusual in that respect, and she was doubly unusual in writing in the same way in her um, criticism as she did in her novels. I mean, I think you get one of the good things about this book that you get a really strong feeling of her as an imaginative presence in a way that I think you you don't always people feel that there are two two things that are switched on as for her compression that seems to be a particular gift of hers I mean I remember at the memorial service one of her contemporaries at Oxford saying we were quite worried when mops as she was known at Oxford um, when we were doing um, our final exams because we were all rushing up for new paper and she just didn't budge. But of course, then we realized that she said more in half a page than we'd said in our four. So I think this was an absolute, this was one of her, her great gifts. I don't think many people have had it, but I don't think many people ever have had it. What do you think, Hermione? I think you're exactly right. Oh, good. I wasn't very impressed. Well, on that note, um, I guess I'll I'll draw things to a close. Thank you so much, Suzanne Thank and Hermione. Really wonderful. Um, the link again for buying the new Fitzgerald section and uh, other books from the LRB bookshop is lrb.me forward slash Penelope. Um, coming up in our events programme, we have a conversation about Sable tomorrow, Lauren Elkin and Deborah Levy next week, and Maggie Nelson the week after that. Tickets at lrb.me forward slash events. Um, thanks again, Susanna and Hermani, and good night. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.